think what I'm excited about is I do sense a hunger, a deep hunger amongst pastors and leaders to pray together. I think we all realize we've been so beat up and, and I think we all realize that we are so humbled and feel so powerless. Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Leash and Jason here with you again, of course. So happy to be here. This episode and all the other stuff we are doing at CCLN is made possible because of partners like Compassion. Jason, can you share a little bit about the great work Compassion is doing right now? I love Compassion worldwide and the team at Compassion Canada. I've gotten to know them through this partnership and relationship. My wife, Rach, and I have been supporting Compassion Children for a number of years. Uh, through the sponsorship program. And I don't know if I told you about this, Leash, but I get to meet one of the girls who's graduating the program via Zoom from Nicaragua. A couple episodes ago, you told me about it, and I'm really looking forward to hear how this and is I going. I cannot wait. I'm like, I'm almost emotional about the whole experience, um, almost like nervous, which I can't explain. But I think it's because while we know that the our support has been going somewhere, it personifies it so much. And it's like such a small contribution we make, but it's makes such a significant difference in the lives of a child. And um, on top of their child sponsorship program, one of the things that Compassion is doing now is responding to all the different issues that have come as a result of COVID. Like it's affected food supply chains and housing stability and work. And so there's a real special campaign going on right now where, you know, often when we're introduced people to things like Compassion, we want to connect churches with them as a partner. But I also want to invite people listening to consider, even as a pastor, as a leader, not just connecting your church to compassion, but you yourself thinking about what it would look like, you know, to provide a food kit or an essential needs kit or community impact kit to a child and a community in need who've been affected by COVID-19. And so if you want to find out more about compassion, you can go to compassion.ca and reach out to their team. It's an incredible resource. We love the ministry and we're really grateful for their partnership because the reason why they partner isn't just to bring awareness to their work. They really believe in the local church. And so one of the reasons why they partner with CCLN is because they wanna come alongside the initiatives we're doing to encourage and support pastors across Canada. Wow, amazing. I'm so thankful for the work that they do. It's incredible. Uh, So Jason, last week you made an announcement about a new program CCLN is launching. Want to share a bit more about what that's going to look like for those maybe that haven't heard about it yet or seen it yet? Okay, this is exciting. This might be the big first reveal for people. And uh, it's a program that's two years long called the Future Church Leader Incubator. And the heart is this, to invite 15 young pastors, men and women, who feel a lifelong call to senior church leadership in the church in Canada and to invite them into a program over two years with personal coaching, mentorship, development in theology, spiritual formation, and leadership. And there's an application available right now. So if you or someone you know, maybe you're listening and you've got a younger leader in your organization, someone between like 25 and 35, who's on a trajectory towards senior leadership, or if you maybe are in that demographic, find out more about the Future Church Incubator It's a very interesting program. We're only admitting 15 per year. We expect there to be hundreds of applicants, and we want to be able to pick the people who are most qualified for this program. We've had a ton of fun cooking it up, really asking the question, what would be an experience that would elevate the leadership, spiritual formation, and pastoral uh, characteristics of individuals on this journey? And so if you want to find out more, you can find out more at ccln.ca. 
Wow, that is so exciting. I'm so excited for that to get started. Uh, well, today we have Drew Hyun with us. He is the pastor and church planner from New York City and founder of Hope Church NYC, a family of churches in the New York area. Jason, maybe tell us why you're so excited to have him on with us today. So I met Drew for the first time on a trip. Some pastors went together to London, England, and I remember meeting him in one of the after hangouts. And I was so compelled by the quality of his leadership. First of all, he spent a number of years under Pete Cesaro, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, The Emotionally Health, Healthy Church, which had formed me a ton. And so connecting with Drew, there's so much shared interest. And he's really someone who's cultivated that whole side of who he is and helping leaders grow in emotional and spiritual health. So it's that aspect. But then when I found out more about what he was doing as a church planter in New York, I had never heard anything quite like what he was doing, not just planting churches, but connecting multi-denominational churches across New York City into a network of mutual shared learning. He's an incredibly sharp, humble, dynamic leader, and I just can't wait for people to hear him. So that's why I was like, we've got to do a conversation for the podcast so we can hear more about those stories. Well, let's just jump right into that conversation right now. Well, hey, friends, I am here with Drew from New York City. Drew, it's so good to be with you, man. Oh, thanks, man. Really glad and honored to be here as well. So, Drew, I, I don't know if you recall, like, our friendship origin story, uh, but, like, uh, like, actually a lot of my friends from the States who are pastors, we met not in America, not in Canada, but in London, England, at, like, some <laughs> Holy Trinity Brompton yes. Alpha event, and I was just talking with our mutual friend Todd Proctor yesterday, and it just reminded us, reminded me that we met uh, at like an Experience Alpha event, I think yeah. in a pub, hanging out afterwards. Do you remember the conversation we had? Yeah, I remember it was around, if, if I recall, it was around yeah. the, the Emotionally Healthy Leader book and how you yes. had this, along with Jason E, about yeah. <laughs> how you guys had a, 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 like a group of guys that yeah. would meet together and try to practice um, yes. some skin, skin and to do skin. you remember the... Do you, <laughs> so you do remember, okay, so this is such an obscure reference. Anyone who's read The Emotionally Healthy Leader might understand this. So here's the background. Drew, you worked with Pete Cesaro, who's the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, The Emotionally Healthy Church, and The Emotionally mm -hmm. Healthy Leader. And most recently, I think he just released The Emotionally Healthy Disciple. Is that right? Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you worked on his staff, and but also now you're working with him to invest often in, in pastors and their journey. You're running courses and opportunities for mentorship. Yep. But in one of the chapters of the book, there's this spiritual practice that he talks about that had me and my friends as we were studying the book together, scratching our head. And it's 20 minutes for couples of, <laughs> yes. of naked cuddling every day. Yeah. The book says you're supposed to. And so when I met you, I couldn't believe that you were part of Pete's church, that you knew him. And I showed you the name of the group message for like our Bible study group was called the 20 minute book club. Right. And I'm convinced that is why we became friends because of that, that deep cut reference point. <laughs> Absolutely, man. You know, that's what we bonded around. So I love it. Oh, man. man. There's this oh, inner dude. kind of shared language and practice that um, at the very least is aspirational for all of us, you know. <laughs> oh, man. And then you were so kind because you invited myself and Jason Eliason and our wives to come spend some time in New York with you, some other pastors. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Pete and Jerry, tell me a little bit about those gatherings you've been hosting, some online, some in person. Tell me a little bit about the heart behind that and why you've been wanting to create those kind of opportunities for pastors. 
Yeah. Um, well, so I think Pete and Jerry, who, if people um, don't know, their story was really birthed out of a lot of ministry fruitfulness from the outside, but inwardly their soul and their marriage was disintegrating. And so it's amazing how that can happen, right? Like how mm-hmm. uh, everything on the outside, the, it, like it's up and to the right, but inwardly, um, both of them were really starving for more of God and really for mm-hmm. more of a healthy marriage and family life. And that sent them through a whole spiral of um, really an awakening towards uh, what's now called emotionally healthy discipleship, a discipleship that goes beneath the surface that addresses some of those parts of us that perhaps have been unformed, especially in the Protestant evangelical way of approaching spirituality and discipleship. And out of that really birthed this whole movement towards wanting a discipleship that's deeper, not only in our walk and our contemplation with God, but also in the ability to love and be present with one another. And so Anyhow, Pete, uh, I was with him for 10 years, uh, with him and Jerry, was discipled kind of in their basement, um, doing life along with them in a very diverse, multicultural, urban context in Queens, New York. And uh, in this next season, Pete has actually handed off the church to a good buddy named Rich Velotis, who's now the lead pastor there. And Pete and Jerry, now that they're in this season, have really felt this call to mentor younger leaders. Um, and so we're in constant conversation. And so kind of what's birthed out of that was Pete and Jerry have this longing, um, Mm. even, even with the book writing and things like that and being on different stages and podcasts and things like that. One of the things that they've always been very deeply committed to every year, even as I saw them as lead pastor and Jerry, who is pastor over the marriage and family, um, was really this deep commitment to, to going on a long journey with a group of people. And mm-hmm. so in, in discipling relationships. And so I think that's the part of pastoral ministry that they've missed, actually, is that developing of younger leaders. And so very recently, uh, we've been talking about different ideas about what they had in mind. And they were actually somewhat surprised that I said, Pete, I don't know if you understand this, but, and Jerry, I said, I think there's a number of young leaders across the world that would mm-hmm. love to be in a mentoring relationship with you and to just continue to learn from the well of all that you have gleaned and are continuing to glean in your journey of emotional healthy discipleship. And so uh, the gathering that um, you and Jason Eliason were uh, invited to was basically a gathering where we were piloting for the first time, mm-hmm. uh, where we invited 20 couples just to come and to spend a few days together. And since that time, uh, we realized the fruitfulness of that. And Jerry Scazzaro, uh, if I don't know how much you got to know her during that time, but she's the type of person who's like, this is not enough. This is just a sliver. Like we Mm. really want to journey with people over an extended period of time. And so um, out of that, we just started putting together uh, an assortment of different mentoring um, opportunities, Mm. some that are in depth and over a longer period of time, um, some that are simply eight weeks long, some that are um, three days long. And so now we've kind of uh, curated these different gatherings where people can spend some um, invested time in their in investing in their own souls and in their relationships mm-hmm. um, via the emotionally healthy discipleship um, curriculum, as well as all the ways in which Pete and Jerry are growing in that as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of the the gatherings that have taken place and the heart behind it. I think they're now in a season where, um, in some ways, they're beginning to deplatform themselves so that they can more fully invest their lives, hearts and ministries into investing in the next generation. Hmm. And so uh, Rich Velotis and I are simply products of that. I know that both of us feel incredibly indebted to the Schizeros. And so um, 
we are excited about the fact that Pete and Jerry are in this season where they want to give themselves away uh, towards even more leaders across the world. So, mm. yeah, so that's oh. kind of the impetus of what's happening and uh, some of the stuff that we're curating at Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Hmm. And for you, like, what's at stake? Because I think I hear part of it is really honoring the investment that you receive from Pete and Jerry and New Life and, and through the relationship. Um, but also this is, it feels like a real conviction for you around what yeah. pastors need. Yeah, what's at stake for you in, in this kind of conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, well, my own personal journey, I come from a background of in, intense workaholism, like that immigrant mm. hustle. Um, also a broken family life, uh, a lot of violence in my family, um, a lot of father, um, broken father relationship that I've had to wrestle with and work through. And um, so a, a lot of that family of origin um, stuff in my past, along with my own propensity to overwork, coupled with the, the culture that often tells us that what we produce is more important than what we do or how we are present with people, and that somehow that gifting uh, matters more than character. I know that no one would ever explicitly say that, but I think um, in the culture, even in church culture, it can mm. somehow um, really champion that kind of mentality. And so I know for myself, um, the work of emotionally healthy discipleship um, has saved my life. Mm. <laughs> and um, it's taken me through seasons of wrestling through my own brokenness and of humbling myself and of reminding myself of what really matters. And um, so what was interesting for me was, it, for, so for 10 years, I was on staff at New Life Fellowship. So I was working on staff. I, I worked from an intern, and then 10 years later, I was the senior associate pastor and teaching pastor. And so what was so uh, harrowing for me was after that 10-year run, when we discerned a call to leave and, to, and we were trying to f- discern what was next for us, we left. And honestly, this pride had crept up within me. That was basically mm. like, oh, yeah, you know, like now I'm 30, 31 years old and um, I've kind of, I, th- I think I've mastered this emotional health thing, you know? And so I, I just remember, like, I wouldn't ever say that out loud, but I mean, that's kind of how I thought, like, ah, uh, yeah, I, th- I think I'm beyond this now. And... And so then we discerned that we were supposed to plant a church. And so we started planting a church. And, you know, Mike Tyson has that phrase where he basically says, uh, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. (laughs) And uh, that's kind of what church planting was for me. It was this foray now into moving from the second chair to the first chair, being into this pioneering, um, intense spiritual battle of starting this new work in mm. you know, post-Christian secular context. And with all of the challenges of money and leadership and complaints and all of these things, um, I realized that my soul began to wither again. And in a weird way, um, it was only after I left New Life and had started this church planning journey, I would actually email Pete regularly, him and Jerry. Mm. I would basically say two things. Number one was, um, I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> and I would say, hey, I'm sorry for um, the ways in which I had just been so arrogant and I thought I had it all figured out. And now I see the things that you were trying to tell me. And mm. I, for whatever reason, I didn't take it quite as seriously as I should have. And the second thing that I wrote to them was thank you. Like, thank you so much. Like, knowing my own family history and where I've come from my own um, thirst for approval and people-pleasing, my own ways in which um, I 
am so kind of driven by achievement. Like, I, I just told him, thank you, because if, if I had not been with you for 10 years, um, as hard as I'm struggling now, I, I don't know where I would be. Mm. And so in a weird way, um, it was actually leaving New Life and Pete and Jerry that I gained an even deeper appreciation for their message. And so now what's like, you ask the question, what's at stake? I mean, for me, I think that, and even now that I've been in this church planning journey for about nine years now, um, I, you know, the more I look around at my peers and, um, and I'm around different church leaders, whether they're large churches or smaller churches, I mean, the number one issue is the sustainability and the vibrancy of one's own soul and the state of one's marriage and family, or if they're single, there's the state of their own kind of healthy relationships and community. And so um, I think, I mean, I, I hate to sound so hyperbolic about this, but I think everything's at stake because the witness of the gospel, um, I think the longevity, especially in a place like New York and where already there's a sense of cynicism and skepticism towards Christians and the message, I think the health and the vibrancy and whether we are truly a people who um, uh, not only talk about a loving God, but actually embody a loving presence, I mm. think that's what's at stake. And so, um, so that's why I'm so deeply committed to this, to emotionally healthy discipleship and, and to the need for fathers and mothers like Pete and Jerry and others um, who are willing to invest not in kind of... Uh, you know, hey, let, let me tell you how you, your church can grow and become, and you can become a, a media influencer, a social media influencer, but rather l let me show you a way or a path of how you can hopefully be a person who abides and loves Jesus more fully, who um, has a marriage that really mirrors the mystery uh, of God and his love for, for us through the ways that your marriage can embody that as a loving relationship with one another. Um, and the ways that you can also look mm. to raise up sons and daughters. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I think it's of monumental importance right now. And, and I don't say this because uh, as some sort of authority. I say this as someone who has walked the path of Christian mm. leadership and realized all the broken parts of myself that I'm still discovering and how deeply I need to listen to voices that call me back to abiding, abiding in the Father, of prioritizing my marriage and family, realizing that my first witness is the witness of my marriage um, and the way that I'm parenting. So, mm. so those are all the things that I think uh, make this such an important topic for today. Oh, thanks for sharing all that, man. I think there's kind of two, there's probably a lot of lies we believe in leadership, but two that probably a lot of people have, have had to come face to face with. I think the first lie is that we're not as flawed as we are. Mm. And the second is that our flaws, and I don't mean flaws like strengths, weaknesses, I just mean like that brokenness that's unaddressed that God wants to tend to. Mm -hmm. um, I think the lie is that that doesn't actually affect those we lead. But when mm -hmm. we're leading out of that broken place, and so the grace of God is that even while we're broken and a work in progress, we never alive, he uses us, his grace abounds, all these things. But the degree to which like, man, I've just been, just even hearing you talk feels so, um, so just reminded again, my own responsibility as a leader to tend to my soul. Mm. What did, or, how did Orkberg put it in uh, Soul Keeping? Did you ever read that book, Soul Keeping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, mm -hmm. I, I did something, you might correct me, it's like, your soul's a river and you're its keeper, or something mm. to that effect. And I just remember like, 
there's this invitation, not just as we're leading others to also abide, to draw deeper and to do that internal work because it actually shows up in so many levels of our leadership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah, I was actually on this, you know, I was on this panel. There was, uh, there's an organization here in New York called Restore NYC and mm-hmm. they ha- had this panel around abuse and power and I was the pastoral representative and they had a number of uh, folks who work legally on behalf of clients and victims of abuse in churches and things like that. And so here I was as a pastor representing pastors in this conversation around spiritual abuse and leadership abuse. And one of the things um, that came up for me was I realized as a, as, a, as a pastor and as a leader, one thing that I'm unaware of, which you just kind of mentioned, is my shadow, like how deep mm. my shadow goes. And that takes enormous internal work. And then the second thing that I realized was, I, you know, when I stepped into pastoral leadership as well, I didn't quite realize my role and my power. And I know that mm. sounds kind of strange, but I didn't realize like, and those things coupled together is where I can be so unaware of my own toxic leadership and how it affects the entire organization because I'm unaware of my shadow and I'm unaware of my power and how... Like a lot's at stake with the words that I use, with my own moodiness that I bring to our team whenever I'm feeling kind of anxious or down about something. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't realize how powerful my words in the position that I'm in, in this role or this vocation as a pastor can have on other people. And so, you know, I, I think that therefore the work of it's not only like sifting through my own shadow, but it's also sifting through my own inability to see my own power and influence over, mm. um, you know, in the communities that I lead and really wanting to steward those things in ways that would be life-giving and nourishing rather than depleting and potentially abusive, you know? And mm. so, um, so I, I think the stakes are even higher in that way. It's not only about like my own brokenness. It's also being aware of the unique vocation that we're in as pastors and leaders and um, the people that we're called to care for and lead um, in our past, in our churches and ministries. Hmm. I'd love just to hear a bit about Hope Church NYC. And so you transitioned out of new life mm-hmm. and you discerned a call to church planting. And mm-hmm. now fast forwarding years later, it's not one church, it's a family of diverse churches all over New York City. I'd just love for you to give us a window into this community of churches that you're leading and a bit of its story. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so uh, so leaving New Life was is a whole big story, and that story was basically I went through in 2010 a pretty significant season of depression, mm-hmm. and our church, New Life, was also going through some significant growing pains through the good growth. And of course, we were very open about these, these conversations. Our church had grown quite a bit uh, during my tenure there, and. Um, and Pete, his books had um, started to, to do really well. And uh, I think the discipleship and formation that was happening at our church was really fruitful. And so through all those transitions in my own depression, a few things started to happen. One was, um, I, like, as I would meet with spiritual directors and counselors, um, there was all sorts of kind of internal work that was happening for myself that I was becoming aware of, of... Um, only looking back could I actually identify this, the pride that had built up within me while I was there. 
And so in 2010, as our church is going through all these um, uh, different changes, Pete is also starting to have a conversation internally with a few of us about succession for him. And I was on the short list of that succession process. And Rich, who I mentioned, we were both kind of poised to lead the church together and an announcement was going to be made. Um, But in February of 2011, I actually submitted my resignation to Pete and the elder Mm. board. And this is right before the announcement was going to be made in the spring of that year. And Pete was shocked. Rich was shocked. The elder board was was shocked. Um, And they just were wondering why. And um, internally, I realized after that year of depression and everything that I had um, kind of experienced over that year, I realized in meeting with um, spiritual directors and counselors that, number one, one of the reasons why I was staying at New Life was basically because of prestige. Um, like I said, the church had grown a bit, and in New York, it had become like this very pivotal church in the borough of Queens, and I, I actually really liked the fact that I was like in this senior position at this large church in Queens. And, and so I realized one of the things that was keeping me there was this, this little thought that would come into my head. Like, if I were to ever, like, leave this place, I'd be a nobody. Hmm. And I don't want to be a nobody. I want to be a somebody. And so I, I just remember, like, as I, would, I was parsing through that, like, it just became clear that prestige was one of the drivers for me staying. And then secondly, I remember one night, um, I couldn't go to sleep. And so I just woke up my, my wife in the middle of the night and I said to her, and she woke up, she startled awake. And I basically said to her, I said, you know, if you had a more lucrative job, I wouldn't be stuck here. Um, and then she slapped me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but she was just like, she was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, first of all, why are you waking me up for this? And she's just like, is that really what you believe about who God is? That he's got these limited resources and that he sticks us into places and he causes us to suffer because he's just like that. Mm. And then she's like, just go to sleep, you know? <laughs> and so, and then I cried. But uh, during that time, I just realized the two things that were keeping me at New Life were prestige and money. And so, um, so once those things became clear, I realized it was time to leave. And as hard as it was, I didn't actually know what was next. Church planning actually wasn't in my horizon because like I mentioned, I had so much ego because a part of me was like, why would I leave this sweet gig at this church and be a nobody church? Because that's what I thought church planning was like. I'd be a nobody. I'd be insignificant. Um, That shows how much ego I had, which is ironic because church planters need often a lot of ego. And and so I left. I left and then... um, I subsequently got more depressed. <laughs> mm. It was it was a painful journey, you know. It was like um, you know that that feeling where you you think you've hit rock bottom and then there's still rock bottom. Um, that was my experience. Um, I didn't realize how deeply I so much that God needed to root out of me. And I wouldn't wish any like that experience on anyone again. But I realized like God really needed to stamp a lot of things out of me. Um, one of the things was my own sense of identity and belief in the gospel. Like I had, I could preach the gospel, but here I was unemployed and people would ask me what I did. And I'd tell them I'm a pastor and they'd be like, where? And I'd be like, why you gotta be so personal? Like, why can't you just trust me? Why do I have to tell you where? You know, like I get super defensive about it. And it just, it just showed me how much of my own self-worth I had put into being a pastor mm. and a pastor at New Life. 
And, you know, Tim Keller has this phrase where he says, you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I realized that what God was doing was he wanted me to believe the gospel again, <laughs> to trust that my worth and identity wasn't found in my position or title. And I realized that necessary work had to happen. I only realized this months after this. And, um, and then during that time, I was also wrestling through what about the church as well. What, what do I believe mm -hmm. in about the church and what is the church? And um, sorry if the story is getting too long here. But no, I, 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 I just want to say, Drew, thank you so much for sharing what you're sharing. Because I think, I think it's really powerful. Like you're sharing in such a self-deprecating way. And I appreciate your humility and kindness. But also the fact that you've taken the time to discern the subterranean movements of your heart, you know? And mm -hmm. I think even as you're saying that, it's like convicting and um, liberating the best sense of the, of, of, uh, the word for me. Mm -hmm. And I wonder for other people listening. So no, take your time, man. Thanks for, because yeah. these things do inform our, the decisions we make. We, we're not allowed to say that like, well, I'm worried if I, what if I can't get paid, you know? Or, right. or this is a good church. I mean, why would I want to not be associated right. with it? And I just wonder how many people, anyways, I'll stop commenting. You keep going. Thank you no. for sharing all you're sharing. Take your time. Yeah, no. And, and all of those things personally were erupting. And, and then also just the wrestling through church. What do mm. I believe about church? And so I remember reading this um, blog post by Mike Breen, who's a missiologist from the UK. And one of the things that he writes is how the Western church has been marked by three things. One is a culture of consumerism. Second is a culture of competition. And three is a culture of celebrity. And I just remember reading that and being like, oh, wow. Like, what, what if, I don't know, what if the way that we approach church in this next season, um, try to intentionally go against those three things, you know? And so during that time, we, my wife and I, we were actually, we had sublet our apartment in New York and we were actually in Seoul, Korea at the time. We were wrestling and I, I felt like God spoke to us uh, through, you know, that passage in Exodus where Moses says, if your presence does not go up from here, do not send us. And I remember telling my wife saying like, I think God is not only trying to stamp out my own ego, but he's also trying to kill all of my ambitions about New York. <laughs> Because at that point, you know, I had um, subconsciously or not, I had just, you know, I, I think most New Yorkers, we subconsciously and even uh, very consciously feel this way that New York City is the best city in the world. And that, um, and so, and I realized God was saying, Drew, I want you to die to even that and go wherever my presence takes you. So at that moment, Tina and I, she says to me, she goes, well, you know, the, the initial reason why we, we are in New York is because we feel called to an international city and we feel called to work with the urban poor. So she said, I think we can do that. And here are the cities that I would like to live in. London, the Bay Area, Vancouver. Vancouver, I don't know if you know that, Jay. And then uh, and, and New York City. And I was like, I don't have a job. Those cities are so expensive. <laughs> like, and she's just like, no, I just trust that God's going to. And so as we're kind of wrestling through that, and we're wrestling through church, and what does church look like, and... Um, uh, shortly thereafter, we found out that our, uh, that Tina was pregnant <laughs> with her first. Mm. And I was like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? Like, I, we, like, I don't have a job. And, um, and so all of a sudden I'm like, you know what, forget about any dreams of church and 
you know, going against what I just need a job. And then shortly thereafter, there was this large church out in California in the Bay Area that had contacted me and said, hey, we heard that you left New Life and that you would be, might be open to this position. And I just thought it was an answer to prayer because I felt like God was like closing one door, closing the door of New York to send me to this church that I went to university in the Bay Area. My wife used to attend this church when she was in California. And it was a large church that worked with the urban poor. And so I just felt like, wow, this would be amazing. So, um, so I go all in on, we're going to move to the Bay Area. And so fast forward, we're now bleeding through savings. My wife's in her second trimester. We go to this final interview. I go to this final interview by myself and uh, meet with their elder board. The, the meeting goes great. Uh, they end up asking um, me if I have any questions. And, you know, I, one of the questions that I, I, I ended with was, I said, you know, what do you, would you guys ever be open to this? Like, I think one of the best things that can happen to large churches is if they blew up into a bunch of smaller churches. And the reason why is just because I think it can, uh, it can elevate younger leaders. I think that mission and discipleship, not that they don't happen in larger settings, but I think they can be in a different way effective in smaller settings. Uh, would you guys ever be open to that? And then the head elder looked at me and was like, why are you here? And immediately I felt like, oh man, I just, I just bombed this interview. So I started backtracking. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, listen, I did, you know, I, your church is amazing. Whatever you need me for, I would do. And, and uh, later that night I called my wife and told her what happened. She's like, I can't believe you said that. Like, why did you ask that question? And then, but then she said to me, she goes, but you know, I had a dream that God doesn't want us there. And, and at this point, I'm like, whatever. Well, I just need a job. And this is the only shot we have. And so um, I fly back to New York. And the, el- you know, the head elder says, Drew, we loved our time with you. And we're going to get back to you. And so uh, days pass. And I start calling up friends in the Bay Area. Like, hey, we're moving there. Do you know any doctors for this newborn we're about to have? Do you know any? And, um, and then October 10th. Um, of that year, I remember reading in scripture, Psalm 33, it says, a king is not saved by the size of his army. A war horse is a vain hope for deliverance. But the eyes of the Lord on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. And I remember reading that passage and just, I remember thinking, wow, God, the same reasons why I wanna go to California are the same reasons why I left new life prestige and financial security. And I wrote in my journal, God, help me to give my life to something where I hope in your unfailing love, that when the story of my life is written, that it's not written to tell the story of the size of an army or war horses, but the story that's told is a story of someone who hoped in your unfailing love. And I wrote in my journal, God, maybe you're calling us to start a church in New York. And that same afternoon that I read that and that I wrote that in my journal, that church from California called and the head elder said to me, Drew, we believe God's hand is on your life. We just think he has a different assignment for you. And I remember that was all the confirmation I needed. And so at that point, I'm like, wow, I guess we're starting a church. 
And there had been so much that had happened throughout those few months of stamping out my own ego. Because remember, I said that I, I never thought of myself as a church planner because I didn't want to be a nobody, you know. And um, stamping out all my fears and stamping out all my kind of ambitions about what I could be or what I could do. And I realized I was finally prepared. I think God had drilled me enough into this moment where I'd become humble enough to fully depend on Him. And so, um, so the name of the church is called Hope Church because of Psalm 33, 18, those whose hope is in His unfailing love. And from very early on, we wanted to have this vision, um, again, to start a family of churches. It felt so ridiculous saying this early on, but in January mm-hmm. of 2012, um, there was a small group of us, maybe 15 or 20 of us, um, that would gather together and pray about starting what would become a family of churches. And the, the idea was, again, if we could focus on mission, mission and discipleship in a local neighborhood, grow to a certain point, and then we could spin off new churches and send people and resources to help support them, uh, and that we'd be a collection of friends and friends on mission together, and that it wouldn't be a a top-down structure, but instead each church would be independent, Um, but that we'd be a voluntary association so that people would want, this would be a want to and not a have to. And so, um, and again, it was birthed out of that Mike Breen post and kind of this, um, the burgeoning sense of really wanting to to build a great city more than build a great church. And Mm. so, um, so that's kind of the story of Hope Church and how we, we started. And um, since that time, again, we started that first church in Astoria, Queens. So I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be a pastor in Manhattan. Um, like for most of my adult life, I had been in Queens. And if you know anything about the five boroughs, Queens is like blue collar immigrant, um, has the best food, authentic like eh, you know foods as well as um, cheap eats and all that stuff. And I, I never saw myself as a pastor in Manhattan. Um, so I'm kind of an accidental pastor planting a church in Midtown because um, one person actually said to me, Drew, I think, I think you need to start dressing a little nicer to, to start a church in, in Midtown. And uh, I, I did, like, a part of me was like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And I haven't dressed any differently than when I started. But, uh, but it was just, again, I, I just never thought of myself in Manhattan. I just always saw myself in Queens because mm-hmm. that was our heartbeat. And so... Um, but yeah, but it's been, it's been really tremendous over the last nine years to see what God has done. Uh, I love the people we're rolling with and the people um, who are dear brothers and sisters in leading these different churches. We have great fun with each other. We make fun of each other all the time. And we cry with each other and we laugh with one another. And we all kind of um, have each other's backs, which I think for me is just such a gift. Um, mm in church planting and kind of in this journey. So, so that's kind of the Genesis story of hope. And I, I would like to think that in many ways, each hope church embodies a lot of the same um, passions and feel and cultural feel as new life does the church that I came from. Um, I often tell Pete and Rich, like the hope family, we feel like we're an extension of new life and what's happened mm. um, and the deposit that's been made there. So, yeah. Could you tell me just like a bit more detail? So like, because I want people to imagine this, because it's a very unique mm-hmm. model. It's not the only one like this in the world, but it's very rare because it's not quite like a campus model. It's not a denomination. It's not multi-site. Mm-hmm. So just even pragmatically, how many uh, are currently part of the, the Hope Church community of churches? Yeah, so there's 10 Hope Churches. 
Um, and we've given birth to four others that started out as hope communities, but have now taken on different identities. So cool. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And then how do you guys connect? So like, does each of those current 10 have like a, a senior leadership team or a senior pastor of some sort that'll be running point on behalf of that congregation? Yep. Yep. So actually, so each church, um, is actually legally and financially autonomous. Hmm. And so, and then each church has its own lead pastor, its own senior leadership team. And so, for instance, four of those churches have left our family. And we wanted to make it as easy as possible to leave our family of churches. Because like hmm. I mentioned, we wanted it to be a want to and not a have to. Hmm. And so, um, you know, I like to think of it, you know, so we call ourselves a family of churches. Like on one end, there's multi-site where I think things are a bit more centralized and there's a common culture at each common culture, theology, even practical, like discipleship and and mission, like those things are all aligned. And then there's things like networks, like an Acts 29 or other networks that might be out there, like ARC, where churches have different names, but there's a similar kind of um, feel or culture. For us, we're a bit tighter than a network and we're far looser than a multi-site. So we are decentralized. I mean, to give you a sense of how decentralized we are. So we have a common theological core and we have a common cultural core um, that's all written out and spelled out. Um, and it, and also, in addition to that, this is what kind of gets a little wonky for people, is that we're also interdenominational. So mm. each Hope Church is actually- This is my not- favorite part. This is the <laughs> yeah. part that I can't quite get my head around because right now we're working on similar projects here in Vancouver, trying to say mm-hmm. there's got to be a way uh, for the long-term vibrancy of kingdom work in the city of Vancouver uh, for- uh, a young Pentecostal church who's in a gym and a historic mm-hmm. maybe mainline or uh, Baptist church to somehow, it doesn't have to be becoming one team, but to be able to sort of say, hey, we have something we need in each other. And it's like, so these stories seed a part of my heart that's dreaming to see creative partnership. So tell me about this multi-denominational aspect of what you're doing. Yeah, so each, so actually, so the denominations that comprise the Hope Church, so each Hope Church is also aligned with the denomination. And there's four denominations currently that we work with that fit within our theological and cultural core. And those four are basically the, the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is what I'm aligned with, uh, the Vineyard Movement, uh, the Foursquare Church, as well as the Wesleyan denomination. Mm. And so, uh, so the Hope Churches then, we have a common theological and cultural core. And then each Hope Church is also aligned with a denomination. Um, yeah, and so uh, it's, and it's a voluntary association. So our pastors, we get together. Um, during COVID, we were getting together mostly virtually online. Um, we started out doing it probably once a week, and then it kind of tapered off to once a month. And then... Um, yeah, so it's this strong, voluntary family where we continue to resource one another and um, we're in it together. And in addition mm. to that, we started something called the New City Network. Yeah, tell and, us about that. Uh, yeah, so the New City Network is an urban church planting network. So <laughs> the, that part, the, the New City Network started with basically a conversation between a buddy of mine named Edwin Cologne, who started a church plant called Recovery House of Worship. And Recovery House of Worship, Edwin's got this amazing story uh, of like dropped out of high school and was addicted to heroin very early on, 
um, became sober and clean through a 12-step program, and that's actually how he met Jesus. Mm. And through that, he actually, from there, started to share Jesus with all of his you know, 12-step friends. And then through that, he's begun these new church communities uh, all throughout the world called wow. Recovery House of Worship. And so Edwin and I are such good friends, and we were just trying to figure out what's a way that we can work together. And so out of that, both with Edwin and Rich Velotis at New Life, at the former church that I was at, we started talking about, like, what if we started a network um, that could convene people, but we really centered around five different values. And so the values for us were urban, uh, multi-ethnic, spirit-filled, emotional health, and mission. Mm. And so we, so we started to convene different pastors here in the city around those topics. And it just started to take off where um, I think pastors were hungering across denominational lines for a similar heartbeat and ethos um, of urban ministers and churches here in the city. And so uh, pre-pandemic, we had, uh, there were cohorts running in Queens and in Manhattan and in Brooklyn. And then during the pandemic, we would gather New York City pastors over Zoom and uh, it just became a real centering, unifying space for pastors and church leaders here in the city um, to just share resources, burden, share burdens, and to, to really pray with one another. And so, um, so coming out of it, so Edwin Cologne is now the executive director of the New City Network. And uh, I think those five values um, have been resonant with a lot of different urban churches around the world because we've now had um, just different churches from around the world um, just asking us, like finding us somehow and saying like, I really resonate with these five values. Is there a way we can be part of this New City Network? So he's in the process now of formalizing what does it mean to be part of this network? And um, I think something else that was really important to us was that urban church planting was that this network was also something that was led by people of color. Uh, just because in the church planting and the urban church planting landscape, so much of um, the leadership was um, really led by white males. And again, we don't, I don't have a problem with that, but for us, we just said, what if we could create a space where mm-hmm. uh, there were church planting, urban church planting networks that were led by people of color? Um, and so, so Edwin's the executive director of that. So um, with that said, as I talk about the New City Network and as I talk about the Hope family, it's caused a lot of confusion. <laughs> At least amongst our oh, hope like pastors. The, the, the two. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like the Hope pastors are like, so are we, Are is the New City Network part of the Hope family or is the Hope family part of the New City Network? And so... Um, and you're like, yes. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... And I think what, what everyone... I, I think what we've all come to... One of the things I've realized is that like anything that gets us to die to our own egos and mm. that gets us to be more willing to build a great city rather than build a great church. And so that's what we're committed to even post-COVID. And I'm not sure if you're feeling this too, Jay. Like, I'd be curious to hear from you about like, because I know that in New York, one of the the common things that I'm hearing from pastors in New York is we just need, we just need more unity. Like, Hmm. like any illusions of my own grandeur as a pastor and church leader here in the city, like, I just realized, like, I've just been so beat up that we need each other, Um, Mm -hmm. especially if we care about the city. Like, why am I so hung up on, um, again, the competitive nature of churches and stuff? So I know that that's a real thing that's kind of emerging out of this pandemic here in the city as well. Like, just this thirst and hunger for unity Mm -hmm. um, to be united in mission together. Mm. I think that 
it's something that the spirit is doing in our time. Mm. Mm. I think it's something to do with the way that the cultural currents have shaped generations as well. Mm. I think that for whether it's Xers mm. or millennials, there's kind mm. of this sense of we want to do it together. I think it's also that the cost of mission is so high. Mm-hmm. It's like none of this is worth it to like see hope church or the way church bigger. Like it's not worth mm-hmm. it. But if the kingdom could grow, I'd die for that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And Ugh. there's this sense. And I think that there's an old version of unity that was like, let's do rallies together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> let's yeah, rent yeah. the sure. event center. And listen, I'm all, I love get everyone in the biggest venue and let's worship. And I would love to see like, the biggest venue Rogers arena in Vancouver filled with seven days of prayer, but that's not the vision of unity. The vision of unity is, I think it's like really preferring one another, loving one another, being for one another. And yeah. What are some of the costs that you've experienced for the name in the name of unity? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think two things come to mind. Actually, I remember, hearing from J.D. Greer one time, he was sharing about how he would pray for revival. His, his church is in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, I believe. And one of the things he was praying was like, God, bring revival to our land, bring revival to our land. And he said he felt the Spirit speak to him very clearly and say, I'll bring revival when you're willing to have your church not lead it. Hmm. And it just totally changed the game for him. <laughs> like, it was like, yeah, would, would I want revival if it meant that our church was not the one, you know, rallying it? And I'll never forget when he shared that because I think there's a part of me, like, even recently as, as I was, you know, thinking about, I've been thinking about unity and sacrifice and kind of like what you mentioned about the cost. Um, one of our church planters he was, uh, he's in the process of starting a church right now. And we had this whole kind of process that we've done this before and we're putting him through this process of, of planting a church and being a hope church and a hope church in this certain region. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he discerned, after we had kind of gone down a road, he discerned that he didn't want to be a hope church and that he, in fact, wanted to pursue another network and denomination and stuff. And, like, I was doing my best to kind of in the middle of even that conversation, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And, but, like, I realized that insidious kind of voice inside was mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I can't believe, I can't believe this is happening. Like, there was this part of me that was like, angry and hurt and bitter and confused and like but what about all that we invested what about yeah the you know and i remember praying that night and i just realized like you know this whole mantra about we want to build a great city and we don't want to build a great just build a great church like if that's what we're after why am i so hung up on this stuff mm. and so I, so I just realized, even for myself, who likes to talk this big game of unity and all this stuff, like those that question that JD brought up and the same propensity for possessiveness and for not having an open-handed, generous heart and spirit, like mm-hmm. I realize it's in me. And, um, 
And so I, so I'm just realizing right now that um, I still have such a long way to go for the sake of unity. And um, it was interesting. I was talking to, um, but I, I realized that unity will start. And um, I was actually talking to Tim Keller about this recently, about how he was saying that when he first moved to the city, city ministry was so hard in the early 90s. He, you know, it was when he moved here. And he basically, he said that there were a group of pastors that began to pray together because in the 90s, the crime rate was at an all-time high. And just mm-hmm. to give you a sense, like the crime rate um, in New York right now, like there's news of the crime rate. And like, I, I believe like, the number of deaths or the number of murders have skyrocketed here in the city, but it was something like, I don't know, 10, uh, maybe like eight to 10 times that back in the nineties, the murder rate was. And so like things were really bad in the early nineties. And one of the things he said was they began to, they just began praying with one another. And he said, aside from the spiritual dynamics of prayer, which again brought about such a, a movement of churches in New York City starting from the 90s on. He said, aside from that, what it did was it built relationships amongst pastors from different tribes. And he said in those early years, because of a church that he had met in the Lower East Side that was a Pentecostal church, much different than his PCA tradition, they were starting a church in Harlem and their PCA church, Redeemer, gave you know a check of whatever it was, $20,000 to start this new church in Harlem. And they were so flummoxed, like, why would you, a Presbyterian minister, and your church want to support what's happened here? And Tim was just saying that, you know, the benefits of, of praying together is obviously this prayer is the seed of, of every kind of revival and movement of history. But it also builds like a, a simpatico, like a love for one another. And when we're, when we're praying together and when we're side by side, it builds friendships in the city, like real mm. authentic friendships rather than simply just like, okay, if we do this, then we'll get this. It's when, we've, when, it, when friendships have been birthed in the, our backs are against the wall, we've been crushed um, but not destroyed. And we've been broken, but we're still here. And when those friendships can weather through those different seasons, out of that just naturally emerges an abundance of wanting to cheer on um, our colleagues, you know, and fellow ministers in the gospel and stuff. So, um, so I think there is real costs. And I think when churches are far more willing to, I mean, at the most practical level, give away people and, and financial yeah. resources and send them to seed movements that perhaps don't share the same name or the same tribe, but are really, um, you know, oh man, when you said earlier in this conversation, when you said, I would die for the kingdom of God. Like, I, I just, that was like a Holy Spirit moment where I was like, holy cow, yes, yes, what you just said. And I think when we're willing to do that and it shows up um, in the ways in which we're open-handed with resources, I think it makes a real difference. Hmm. Drew, I just love chatting with you so much. There, there are things that um, as a church community here, we planted about a year ago. Mm-hmm. we're living into now that some of them were seated in conversations we had um, mm. years yeah. ago. And we've just been able to connect just a few times and um, just so grateful for you and the way you carry yourself. I was calling our friend I mentioned earlier, our mutual friend Todd before, and I said, what should I chat with Drew about? And he said, I have this memory with Drew where 
I was invited to some event that you were hosting. So Todd was saying he was invited to an event you were hosting and maybe it was New City Network or something like that. And um, you, were, you were coordinating the event and uh, you had like people like Tim Keller speaking, you know, people that, and you were inter- people were being interviewed. And Todd just said, he just saw you like setting up mic stands and wrapping cables. And um, when it came to the actual interviews, like you could have been up there kind of facilitating the whole thing, but you kept putting up team members instead of yourself, like putting up other team members to, to be center stage. And um, he just said that stood out to him so much about a value of leadership that invests in others, that mm. platforms others. And I just, I'm just so grateful for that. And um, as you look at the horizon, I know in, in New York, you guys are opening up sooner than we are in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, as you look ahead, what is, what are some of the things that are you're most excited about as you're dreaming, and what are some of the things that you see as some of the big obstacles ahead? Yeah. Um, well, first, thanks for those words, and thank Todd as well. Like I, um, and Jay, Jay, I don't know if you know this, but like honestly, like going to London, I, especially as an Asian American guy, and I know this is kind of not what you asked, but like. Uh, and I, I don't know if you remember, but I came with Craig Okpala as well. And we were, and um, whenever I walk into spaces, I think due to being an ethnic minority here in the States, like there's a certain kind of pressure and weightiness I feel walking into mm. spaces when I feel like a minority. And I just want you to know that um, actually that conversation, the reason why I remember it so fondly was not only because of what we talked about with that mutual connection to Pete, but because you were just so kind and welcoming and you really seemed genuinely interested in like talking to me. And I just mm-hmm. want you to know that I, that meant a whole lot to me uh, and to Craig. And mm-hmm. um, so that memory is kind of indelibly in my mind. So um mm-hmm. As well as Todd, I mean, he's been such a, and the whole Alpha family, I think. Um, yeah, um, in terms of, um, yeah, you were saying, what am I excited about? What are the challenges? I think what I'm excited about is um, I do sense a hunger, a deep hunger amongst pastors and leaders to pray together. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we all realize we've been so beat up and... And I think we all realize that we are so humbled and feel so powerless. And the city is um, feels definitely like one one friend put it. It's probably the largest reset in the history of New York, um, which is quite astounding if one were to look at the history of New York. He, he just said, or maybe he said in the modern era, but he just said it's the largest reset, and it, and it does feel that way. And I think there's a hunger and desperation amongst those of us who remain. Um, to really see God doing something miraculous. And I do pray, and we all know that unity is the way forward for that. Um, so I think that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited about the possibilities there and to see God do something unprecedented uh, in what could be the largest reset uh, mm-hmm. in the modern history of New York. Um, yeah, in terms of like the greatest challenges, uh, I, I think I mentioned to you in an earlier conversation that you know one of the things that Tim's, Tim Keller said about ministry at 9-11 was that the effects of ministry um, during 9-11 and post-9-11, it actually wasn't seen until three to five years later, where three mm-hmm. to five years later, a lot of pastors and ministries were completely toast and burnt out. 
And the reason was because they didn't realize that the effects of running so hard in the midst of crisis actually led to those three years where people were just willing to quit. Now, of course, COVID itself has been so challenging that it's already accelerated uh, mass departures from the vocation of pastoral leadership. But, you know, I, I think about just being spiritually vibrant and remaining rooted in Jesus. And I really want to be someone, I pray, that uh, nurtures a deep spirituality that continues to grow mm-hmm. in my love for him and in my love for my wife and my family and for that to be um, what sustains me and any pastor or leader or staff person that we have, that we would be a people who abide more than anything before we accomplish anything and realizing that we can leave the results up to God once we've um, really been a people who abide and then the fruit will come, you know? Um, so, so often I'm focusing on the fruit instead of the abiding. And so um, my hope and prayer, and I see that as probably the biggest danger for us as pastors is... Um, like someone said this to me the other day and it just grieved me, but it kind of made sense, you know, with, and I don't know if, um, uh, sorry, if you want to edit this out later, but like someone just mentioned that like with Hillsong and everything that's happened there, like the grief that we've all felt. And Mm -hmm. someone said to me, oh yeah, a bunch of churches seem to be competing to be the next Hillsong. And a part of me was like, really? I, I didn't know that that was even a conversation, but a part of me was just kind of grieving, like, yeah, um, just the fact that we're even talking in that way. And like, what can we do to, gosh, if that's what our focus is on, then we've, we've missed the mark, you know, like, and, um, And so, and, you know, my heart grieves for just the journey that Hillsong has been through. And we're, you know, even the new pastors there, um, I've been in touch with their leadership about coordinating just a prayer meeting for their pastors to welcome them into the city so that we could all be in this together, you know? And so I think that, I think that's one kind of posture that I want to continue to have. Like, guys, we're all in this together. We're not in competition. Mm -hmm. We're not angling to be the next whatever or to be... But like you said, man, we're really we're willing to die for the kingdom of God, and that um, if there's any banner that we're waving, it's the banner of Jesus and um, the way of Jesus, your church name. So, um, so yeah. So, uh, sorry, those were some rambling thoughts there at the end. But I love it, dude. Yeah, I'm just so grateful for you and that heart. And uh, I think it's interesting. I know, I know why you're like maybe you edit it because you know, we're not trying to name one church to mm-hmm. out them. But I think I think when you're in a city like yours and there's a church like Hillsong, like mm-hmm. I remember chatting with John Tyson and him saying like, man, like years ago, you know, people are coming to know Jesus. Like this is part of the fabric of the church in New York. It's not just like a, it's not just a name. It's part of the fabric of the church. And so when something like happens, like what happened, um, in the leadership Hillsong New York, it's 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 a loss for everyone. There's no gloating, mm-hmm. there's no celebrating. We just it's a hit. Yeah. And then and then praise God that there's a, a guy willing to come and pass to that church with humility and yeah. you know, Hillsong globally is like fueling the church in such amazing ways. Like everywhere I go, I see just the effects of Hillsong serving and what a shame if some other church that had another unique contribution to a city or the fabric of the church was trying to be more like them and missing the unique 
contribution they had as a church. And yeah. I just think I hear beneath what you're saying this just longing to not be distracted by comparison. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. also not missing, not giving into competition. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's that two equal errors. Like one is like when we stop being ourselves, there's that competition and that comparison. And I think I hear your heart longing for a vision of the city that those two things don't get in the way and sideline the church. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Any final thoughts before we sign off today, Drew? No, just thank you, man. Uh, love you and love your ministry and your manner and your heart. And really grateful for you, man. And really fun mm-hmm. to, to chat with you. Oh, dude, thanks so much. So thankful for Drew taking the time to share with us today. What a treat. I hope you feel encouraged and challenged by the conversation. As we said before, we are moving to a bi-weekly release for the next few months so our team can take some time to rest, see friends and family over the summer, and as you heard, get working on the Future Church Leaders Incubator. We really hope you'll consider applying or sharing it with someone who would be the right fit for it. Well, Two weeks from now, we have on John and Helen Burns on the podcast. Many of you may know them for their books, speaking, or TV shows on sex, marriage, and relationships, but they were also the pastors of Relate Church in Surrey, BC for many years before recently transitioning out of their lead roles to become founding and teaching pastors. So we can't wait for you to hear from their wisdom. Well, before you go, we have one more thing for you. There are so many great leaders doing amazing stuff for the church in Canada, and we want to share more of these stories with you. So our friend Anne Miranda from Village Church has been connecting with leaders across the country to record small conversations with them about who they are and the work they are doing. This week, she sits down with Stephen Carlton, who is doing incredible work with Arctic Hope Project. So keep on listening for that, and we'll be back in a few weeks with our next episode. Hi, everyone. It's my pleasure to be with Stephen today. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, and it's such a pleasure to be with you. This is going to be a real interesting and I think eye-opening conversation for most of us that are listening. And uh, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and the work that you do in uh, none of it. So, yeah, tell us a bit about you. Yeah, so I uh, my name is Stephen. I run a ministry called the Arctic Hope Project. It's under uh, a larger ministry called the Bill Franken Evangelistic Association. Uh, Arctic Hope Project was launched in 2014 uh, in Nunavut after an 11-year-old boy took his life in a uh, community called Cape Dorset. Cape Dorset's a small community. About uh, 1,400 people live in this, this small little community. And um, yeah, I mean, at the time... I, I was traveling with the, with the founder of this ministry, Bill Prankard, um, and he he just said, if if God can do something, if God is big enough to stop suicide in Nunavut, Cape Doris, it has to be the place that we 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 launch in, and uh, so that's when we launched. I um, married I, I married now for almost nine years. My wife and I have five beautiful daughters, uh, ranging from six to uh, twin newborn uh, baby girls. So. Uh, yeah, you know, it's just, it's a wild journey. We're seeing God, you know, move across uh, the, the Canadian Arctic. We've traveled to every community in the territory of Nunavut, all 25 communities. Uh, we've seen hundreds of uh, people give their hearts to the Lord. 
And the, the big thing going forward is, is just raising up disciples in each of these communities to be um, agents of hope is what we're calling them. But really people with, with uh, incredible backstories of, of brokenness and abuse and, and, and how God has transformed their lives and, and God is using their lives to transform uh, the lives of them around them. So, so, you know, we're excited. God's moving right now in, in Cape Dorset, uh, despite a global pandemic. And uh, I get to live here in Ottawa and do these Zoom meetings with uh, Inuit in the North. How did you even end up doing this? Like what, give us some of your background story. Yeah, so I, at 14 is is when I met Jesus. I, I grew up here in Ottawa. My my mother comes from Nunavut. Uh, she comes from a different Nunavut community uh, called Pangertung. And um, yeah, I grew up here in Ottawa, grew up going to church, kind of the, the classic uh, child Christian experience, Sunday morning, in and out. You know, I didn't care for church. Um, I met Jesus at 14 radically. I mean, everything in my life changed. I, I went from a guy who'd smoke pot, chase girls, uh, to meeting Jesus, finding this, like what, what it felt like was, was liquid love filling my heart. And it, it was, it was Jesus, man. It was, it was God's love filling me. Uh, so I went from smoking pot, chasing girls to all I wanted was, was Jesus in my life. And I wanted everyone in, in my high school to know Jesus. Uh, at 16 is is when things really kind of took a turn for the worst. I was uh, abused by a guy who uh, went to the church that my family went to uh, for a couple of years. I mean, really, things were were dark, you know, and and uh, trauma and the shock of everything kind of uh, settled in. 18, I started drinking, and at 19, I, I knew that something had to change in my life. So, started coming back to church. Met Bill Prankard, the founder of this ministry. Uh, he, uh, he said that they would, the church would count, uh, cover all the counseling fees. Um, and they just wanted to see me on my feet. So yeah, it's, it's a wild thing because, you know, out of the brokenness that I experienced as a teenager, God is using that same thing to, to bring hope, healing, and, uh, and really a future for so many Inuit teenagers living in Nunavut right now. Well, it's obvious you're passionate about the work that you do. You love the work that you do. Can you tell us some things that are happening right now in this present moment? Yeah, so I, I haven't been to Nunavut in, in over a year. I think February 2020, just a month before uh, Canada shut down, was the last trip I took to the Arctic. Uh, Cape Dorset right now, the community that we launched in uh, in 2014, our uh, Inuit Youth Suicide Prevention Program, uh, right now they are having almost night after night uh, meetings at one of the churches. They're having salvations. People are getting baptized in water and in the spirit. They're having drug and alcohol um, dealers pouring their paraphernalia down the toilet because they've just met Jesus. All of this was because of one man who was uh, this community's most violent alcoholic, drug and alcohol addict. He met Christ about a year and a half ago, and now he's, he's Cape Dorset's number one evangelist. He's kind of the guy who's, who's leading the charge there. And uh, we're believing that this same thing will happen in every community. And, uh, and ultimately that, that suicide, where the highest suicide rates exist in the, in the nation, uh, that in Nunavut, we will ultimately see suicide completely fall off the map. Wow, Stephen, this is so inspiring. Like, why, why don't we wrap up with what is your hope and prayer for the church in Canada? Man, I mean, the, I think we're on the verge of one of the most profound and widespread moves of, of the Spirit of God across this nation. 
And what that means is, is people who don't know Jesus will meet Jesus, and we will see uh, disciples made across this nation from all walks and, and, and creeds alike. So uh, I, I think it's a fantastic time to be praying and, and just kind of waiting, but also engaged in, in what God is, is about to do. Thank you so much for sharing your heart, your passion, your love for Jesus. Honestly, it's so contagious. And for folks that are listening in, check out Arctic Hope. Thanks so much, Stephen, for being with us today. Thank you.